And now for something completely machinima. And welcome to the end now for something completely machinima podcast. My name is Ricky Grove and I'm here with Damien. Hello, Damien. Hi, Ricky. And Tracy Harwood. Hi, Trace. Hey, how you doing? And a big welcome back to Phil Rice, who has been away for a while and joining us again. Hi, Phil. Hey there. We missed you very much. Welcome back. I missed you guys too. Thank you. Sure. Oh, and uh, just so you remember. I agree with Ricky, 100%. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to have a talk about that later. I listened to those episodes. uh, That that didn't work out as well as I had hoped. Well, it sounds like it worked out great for you. (laughs) I I should probably do a phony apology, so I'm really sorry. Hey, Phil, I'm really sorry about that. Hey, Phil, I'm really sorry about that. (laughs) Okay, we're going to be posting four episodes in October of 2021. The first is the one you're listening to right now, and we'll cover Phil's recently released uh, an excellent machine of a film, Obit. Uh, we'll talk with him about the making of the film, and we're going to share our reactions. The second episode will be our Machinima News podcast, and there's lots of really great news this time. And then our film section, which is increasingly becoming my favorite uh, part of all of our podcast recording. And our theme is going to be Horror and Halloween. And uh, our fourth episode will be our Machinima discussion, where we'll examine ideas and concepts around Machinima filmmaking and the Machinima real-time community. And then, of course, Bill Gru- Ben Grusey will share his Machinima history near the end of the month. And as always, you can listen to our podcast at our website, completelymachinima.com, or through your favorite podcast aggregate, Apple Podcasts, Google, Buzzsprout.com. And notes and links for each episode will be on our blog at completelymachinima.com. And by the way, we got some authentic feedback this month. Phil, I think you answered, you answered most of them. Who wrote to us? Yeah, we did. And actually, <clears throat> to say it, it came in this month is a very liberal use of that term. Um, <laughs> let's just say I'm catching up in some regard here. For example, uh, CJ Ambrosia, uh, the, the guy behind the, the, the series from, from kind of the classic Machinima era peds. Yep. Um, which was made in Grand Theft Auto. Um, he finally got around to wrapping up that series by, by uh, cutting and producing a few more episodes. Um, he did that uh, actually in December of 2020. Let me know about it in June. And so now f- four months later, I'm, I'm finally telling everybody else, but sorry, CJ. But uh, I've gotten to watch some of them. I haven't watched them all yet. But, uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's basically bringing some closure to a long-running series uh, that was very enjoyable at the time. So we'll be sure to include a link to that. Uh, he, he gave us some, some links, and, and I believe the whole series, all the seasons are available if you wanted to get caught up on that. Yeah. Um, we got some feedback from Zeke365, who's written into us before. Um, talking. He had some comments, uh, very good comments, on one of the discussion topics that you guys did last month, I believe about long form machinima. Um, <clears throat> he was, he was very verbose in his comments. So I'm not going to read the whole thing here right now, but his, he, he basically kind of weighs in, in a somewhat similar way to the conclusion you guys came to, which is that 
Machinima is in just not as well suited for long form as it is for short, and he would love to see a revival of an emphasis on short form because he feels like that's where Machinima really shines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of tend to agree with him. There's some exceptions for sure. Um, someone who signed their feedback, Blotto's Typist, says, Hi, oh. I, stump- I stumbled upon your podcast and was pleasantly surprised to find a discussion of the Petrovsky Flux video in your most recent episode. He wrote this in August. Uh, it's been over a decade since we built that structure. Um, so it's fun to see the ways that it's been kept alive. The machinima you featured is among my favorites. So thank you, Blotto's Typist, for that yes. feedback. And finally, someone by the name of Volsky wrote in, said, I saw a notification regarding your comment on my machinima address unknown, Max Payne. Uh, he was actually one of the ones, and for any of the rest of you out there, we we try to put comments on the YouTube videos that we uh, discuss on here to let you know that we've talked about them. And there's been a weird thing with uh, that, that I know Ricky is is investigating where YouTube is deleting some of those comments, maybe yeah. because they have links in them. We're not really sure what's happening there, but uh, um, uh, anyway, thank you Volsky for for writing in, and yeah, we we did enjoy that uh, that film. So that's it. Yes, thank you so much for contacting us. It's a welcome relief from the absolutely absurd um, spam comments that we'd be getting. I think I deleted 43 of them, and one of them was like, I really like your excellent post. We have to post more like this. And then a link, you know. (laughs) So thank you very much. We're finally getting out to the community. Um, I appreciate that. Yes. In actual fact, um, just to pick up on um, Blotto's comment, we're also featuring Petrovsky Flux in the interview that um, is uh, released, uh, actually, as we're recording here, released this coming week, with Sarah Higley. Excellent. Um, because that Excellent. was one of the filming locations for her lover's concession in the cinema as well. Excellent. music you're listening to now is by Marco Simone. It's the soundtrack for Obit, a short machinima film created in Red Dead Redemption 2 by our very own Phil Rice. Phil, as many listeners are aware, have been making machinima films for almost two decades now. He's one of those filmmakers who seems to push machinima forward and show the community that machinima can be an art form if you pay attention to detail and make your stories personal. At least that's how I see it. Phil, I want to congratulate you on Obit. And I want to ask you a little bit about the music. How did you come across Marco Simone's uh, music for this film? Well, the the music, it's interesting. Uh, I found uh, a, a, a couple pieces by a different composer, um, whose name I don't have right here in front of me, but uh, it was solo guitar kind of experimental in nature over on the free music archive. And I really wanted to use that. Uh, in fact, I, I, I had already 
constructed my initial edit of the film timed to <laughs> that music. Uh, and so I reached out by the only contact information that I could find for this guy. He's an American uh, composer who was born in somewhere in the Far East. I, I want to say Bangladesh. I'm not 100% sure on that. <coughs> well, I never got a response from him. I waited about a month, tried a couple different times. And so then I'm just kind of stuck with, well, according to the terms of the uh, license posted with that music, it's not one that I can just go ahead and use and tell him, you know, I have, I needed permission. So then, then began the hunt for, I've got to, you know, come up with some new music for this. Um, and I, I had done enough searching to find that original soundtrack that I, I, I knew it wasn't just out there already made that I really needed someone to really score this. Um, I thought about trying to do it myself and ultimately just realized I, I don't have the guitar skill set for this and it's got to be guitar. So my search ended up leading me to Fiverr, believe it or not. Huh. And I went through a ton of different musicians on Fiverr, listening to their demos and, and such. And basically I found Marco on there and it turns out he had never sold a gig yet on Fiverr. He was brand new to it but his demo was exactly the style I was looking for. So I reached out to him and said, Hey, here is, and I was very upfront with him about the story. I just told you about the, the music that I wanted to do. I can't get permission for it. So I want something original. I don't want it to sound just like that. You know, you do your style, but, and I kind of divided the film up into segments uh, and we negotiated a, a price for his services and, uh, and yeah, he composed it like over over a weekend. Wow, um, it, it was amazing. And uh, and I, I didn't have to have him do any retakes at all. It was perfect. And uh, so yeah, that's that's how the the main part of the music came together. Is he actually had my edit of the film that he could watch with sound off, and he played while watching it. Oh, that uh, sounds great. Yeah, and so I've always always wanted to score a film that way. Um, you know, I mean, that's what John Williams does with the orchestra. You've seen those with, you know, for the yeah, Star Wars yeah, yeah. movies and stuff. It's amazing. Of course, that's a, that's a lot more planned. This was very improvisational, you know. I mean, he he right away he got the Western vibe. I knew it was part of his his skill set as far as styles go, and he was so excited. He's from Italy, and so uh, you know, a lot of uh, spaghetti westerns are you know have. The, I can't remember the composer that did the the one for all of Clint Eastwood's Any, stuff. Enrico Morricone. There we go. Mm -hmm. So he, he he had grown up learning guitar and with a very much a native appreciation of that style and that approach. So it was just the perfect fit. So once I had his re, uh, guitar recording, then I just I felt like I want to add a little bit something more. And years ago, my wife had got me at my request this drum that's like kind of like a giant tambourine with some kind of animal skin stretched over it and some bells around it and all that kind of thing. And I fiddle around with it at the house from time to time. And I'd always wanted to use it in a score. So I did the same thing. I watched the movie with listening to his score. And I think it was the third take was the keeper just did some just improvised 
little ornamentation yeah with yeah. with that drum and um so yeah that's that's how it came together so the entire the score is all very improvised there was never anything written nobody specified oh use this key and this tempo none of that uh and and i liked that i felt like that 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 captured the spirit of what i wanted there so my thanks to marco i hope i hope he uh listens to this i'm going to tell him about this episode for sure well, the music uh, and the uh, sound effects, including your your lovely drum playing, was my favorite parts of the film. I mean, I really thank you. Love the whole film, but the the music in particular was it just set the mood and um, for each scene and each each uh, section of it just played so perfectly. And I love the fact that the sound effects were very subtle all the way through it. Um, now there were some sounds that the game created, right? Like the crow. And yeah, stuff like uh, that. <clears throat> how I ended up doing that was, uh, you know, the, the game has Red Dead Redemption Two has just an amazing soundscape. I mean, we just if you just wander around, there's this whole blanket of sounds all around you. Um, but obviously, with the kinds of cuts that I had to do for the edit of the film, that that resulted in some uh, discontinuity in the sound that came from the captured footage. Right, right. So almost without exception, uh, those were uh, overdubbed. But what I did is I actually went back to the locations in the game where those scenes took place and just did sound capture. Hmm. Uh, actually, I did video capture through uh, OBS, but then I just you know stripped out the video and just used these beds of audio so that it would there would be a consistency to it. Right, um, and that was kind of the under undercurrent for the different scenes, um, and then there's certain things that that I augmented with uh, either sounds that that I made on the fly or some through free sound, which I credited um, for things that needed specific timing, like uh, when the preacher's walking up in the grass, you know that right. that crunchy footstep, um, uh, the cigarette smoking. Uh, it's very subtle. You have to have headphones really to catch that, but the, the sounds of him puffing on the cigarette and then exhaling the game actually does a really good job with those. But again, it was a, a continuity thing with the cuts that it was cutting off breaths and things like that. So that all ended up getting overdubbed as well. So yeah, the end result is a lot of the game sound is a part of that atmosphere, but it wasn't from the, it wasn't from the footage capture, um, in order to, to, uh, have a little bit more control over it. Right. I, the thunder as it? well was a lot, was all added afterwards because I really, uh, the timing of that was very important to me. Yeah. Uh, Tracy or Damon, do you have any questions for a film? Uh, about the film? Yeah, I do. Um, Cause I remember when you two were just um, were talking about Red Redemption before in one of our previous uh, podcasts, one of the things that you guys were talking about was how difficult it would be to actually use the <laughs> engine to film something so yes. when i watched this i thought how did you do that because i remember that conversation very clearly it's going through my mind all the way through so what did you end up doing to make this actually possible you know i over the years i've done so many different films of varying lengths never has there been so much footage captured for a film as this one uh, wow, we're talking eight to ten hours of footage to sift through. Um, that's after throwing away obvious 
you know, no good takes eight to 10 hours of usable footage uh, because there was a lot of unpredictability, even with the tools that I was using uh, and a lot of trial and error to get things to behave the way that I needed. Um, uh, the ride in was fairly simple. Once I figured out how to place a camera, you'll, you'll notice on the right in shots, most of them are static. And basically that's me controlling the guy riding way in the background, but the camera is stationary. Um, the, the shots of the ride in that are moving are using the built in cinematic camera in, um, in Red Dead Redemption, which, which you really don't have very much control over that. I think you can force it to change perspective, but you, it's just improvising and grabbing uh, angles. So I, I just had to do that a whole bunch. And knowing the path that he was going to take through different landscapes to try and keep a sense of continuity there if he's coming down from the mountains and then getting closer to civilization. So I'm recording all this footage in the mountains and then all this footage kind of in the intermediary forest and then all this footage in the open space, just crazy amount of footage. Um, but that conveys really well this sort of, um, you know, the, the, I mean, the, this cowboy is clearly living out in the wild and it kind of portrays the sheer distance that he's traveling to come into his dad's funeral. And I think that, that, that sets the mood of the piece and what what I'm you know was that was that a deliberate thing that you tried to set the tone of emotion without voice Very I know much. you did it through music but it was all you know pretty much the mood of the character your lead character is he doesn't utter a word yeah that was that was very deliberate yes yeah uh, it's brilliantly done Phil uh, brilliantly thank done. you thank you um, but but the, but you wouldn't be able to have done that, I don't think, unless you've got that sort of up in the mountains, down in the forest, down in the, you know, going through the ravine and what have you. Yeah. And I knew there was a bit of a risk there with a, you know, to have a, I think the final cut ended up being around 13, close to 14 minute film. And the first however many minutes are just, I mean, at first there's, you don't even see the writer. It's just this sunset and. I, I was really wondering if <clears throat> that would be perceived as, you know, gratuitous or something, you know, of, uh, it does but, feel but it, it was, it was to me, that was an important part of the story. Uh, in fact, I did with the help of Evan Ryan, a good friend of mine, we did a, we did a second edit of the film to get it under 10 minutes, uh, for Milan. <laughs> Okay. That's the only reason. Uh, and I and I debated with myself about, I don't want to do that because I already feel like every part of this is really essential. But it's, you know, you weigh it against, well, I also right. want people to actually see this movie and this is a good way to do that. Yeah. So I don't think I'll ever publicly release the cut that I sent in for Milan, but uh, because I really feel like that 13 minutes, 51 seconds or whatever it is, is, I mean, I, 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 pained over every second of every frame of that to and yeah it's very deliberate and it's 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 yeah the the okay so the the intent of having the main character say nothing that was always part of the idea um I, there was never anything ever written for him uh, i knew that i wanted to after having experimented 
with Red Dead and seeing some of the expressions that were possible and some of them that were even accidental, you know, just incidental stuff that somebody motion captured for that game. I thought there's enough here where if I, if I edit it right, he can communicate a lot Yes. Without saying a word. And boy, is that not a strong point for Machinima generally. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, yeah. in, in yeah. Unreal and Unity now, the, the amount of contr- iClone even, the amount of control you have over facial expression, you can pull it off. But never have I seen a, a game give you that uh, to get you there so far. That's exactly what I was, you know, sort of getting to. The fact that you've managed to portray that level of communication, A, without him speaking, and B, without using any kind of facial mocap to animate the, the, the faces more. But never does it come through more than when he's actually having that conversation with his mum, <laughs> if I can put it that way. No, you're right. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's words passed there, but neither of them speak. And in fact, one of them, you're just looking at the back of them. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's yeah. really, really well done. Yeah. And, and do you know what? I, I was, as I was kind of looking... At this, I was thinking that there are several things that I really enjoyed about this. One is that it's clearly, you know, so to kind of rewind, the way I read the film was that this is a guy that, you know, he's a he's a he's a cowboy. He lives in the wild, and you know, you, I mean, this is probably not how you intended. This is how I read it. So this guy comes in and he's preached to by a guy who lives a different type of life. And so the satire for me is on life and death and the different perspectives of it and the role of religion versus the natural way of things, which is also what I read into it. Yeah. And then the other thing that I picked up on, and I don't know if this was intentional, but was this, this to me was a more than a passing reference to that classic painting by Grant, Grant Wood, um, American Gothic. Don't know if you know that. Feel that that mm-hmm. painting, yeah, um, which which basically is a satire on rural values and survival in the Midwest in the nineteen thirties. And I know you're talking about slightly different time span here, um, but for me, what you then managed to capture because I'd got that cultural reference in my head there was that it somehow sits between being painterly and filmic, and the, and the fact that you've got the stills of the faces of the characters, which we've talked about before. We talked about it when we discussed Haunter of the Dark um, a couple of months back on the fact that the stills, you know, it's sort of like a series of stills rather than a film that you're looking at. And I think this is coming through here as well. And it's, it's their grittiness and the, the, the contemplative um, quality um, that kind of comes through with, the, with that kind of series of stills that you're looking at. And that journey, you've got a journey in there, which... You know, it's not it's it's not in the scenes, but it's in the sentiment of it and that voiceless emotion, which is so well conveyed in that story for me. So I thought that was such a brilliant film, um, something I've never seen you do before, Phil. And it was absolutely brilliant. So very well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, By the uh, way, the uh, excuse <clears throat> me a second. The uh, the the coming down out of the mountains is a classic Western um, iconic thing. If you remember the beginning of Shane, mm. the film Shane, yeah. he comes down out of the mountains into the valley. Many other Western films do the same. John yes. Ford, yes. Bud Boddicker's films, they show a person coming down out of the mountains and it's this stranger 
who's coming down into this familiar place to change everything. Things are going to change when they get there. So as soon as I saw that, I latched right onto that. And I went, oh, my God, this is just great. Because I had rewatched Shane not too long ago. And I was thinking, and in the commentary in the film, they were talking about that being a trope. And I thought, oh, great. This is so great. Thank you. But then he goes from, you know, from whence he came. So he's not interested in changing it. He just. Well, he did there. change. He did. He did change things. But the change is uh, ambiguous. Or imaginary. Well, same thing. <laughs> right. Right. Really About bad. that, uh, and I, just in case, uh, I'll try to avoid talking about this in spoiler fashion, but uh, the, the section that you're talking about, Tracy, where it's revealed that at least part of this uh, may not have happened the way that it initially appeared, Right the imaginary aspect of it. That was not the original cut of the film. Ah. The, the original cut of the film, I just had him walk away with the, the person still laying there. And I completed the edit. Um, hadn't got into soundtrack or anything at that point, but I'd completed the edit and just kept watching it and watching it and just something just wasn't right. Uh, and I don't even know how to put a finger on what it was, but uh, so I just thought, I, I want to try something. So I went back and had to recut certain shots and things to make it work. And then, yeah, when that, when, when I saw that cut together and it added a few seconds to the film, I want to say, you know, 15, 20 seconds, I think. Uh, I just thought, yeah, that's it. And that's a trope too. I mean, that's that, that, fantasy sequence type of thing right I mean, it's been done but i don't think that that means that it can't still be done well oh sure and and used in a good way you know i mean you you want to be innovative but you also don't want to ignore like you said ricky the thing with the, the coming down out of the mountains uh i knew as i was putting that together i thought yeah i've seen this you know i've seen this type of this whatever this is i've seen it before uh, maybe not quite this way, but um, yeah, I was conscious of that. Even if I wasn't, I didn't use any specific film to refer to for that. Um, but I knew that it had, per I've watched so many Westerns, you know, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. I knew, okay, yeah, but this is the appropriate place to use that for what I'm doing. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so glad for your, your feedback and it's, it's, I, I kind of get goosebumps talking about this film, honestly, because I, I don't mean this. I hope this doesn't come off as, as arrogant, because it's not. But I know, I know it's something special. I, I I knew that as I was making it that oh wow, I've never done something like this. You know, this is, this is something, this is really something. Well, you know, so, I wanted to know a little bit about the background of the story. Sure. Um, that you came up with. And I know there's a religion is an important thing in your life. And it's interesting that religion doesn't come off very well in this particular <laughs> story. So it doesn't come off very well in many of my films, <laughs> I think. But, so uh, where did it, the story come from? Had you been mulling it over for years? or? Yeah, when I was 19 or 20, uh, my uh, uh, grandfather on my mother's side passed away. 
it was while I was in my first or second year of college. So 25, 30 years ago, 30 years ago. And so I got invited to come to his funeral, which was up out of state. And uh, my dad offered to fly me up there so I could come. And I'm not, not normally someone that's big on, on those kind of things, but this grandfather was very dear to me. Uh, and his, his death was, I mean, he wasn't a young man, but it was, it was sudden and it was unexpected. And, uh, I just really wanted to be there. And when I attended the funeral, essentially the, the actual eulogy that the minister gave and then subsequent conversations among others who had come, uh, from, from the church. Uh, he, he was not a church going guy. He was, he didn't profess any, any faith or religion. Um, but he was a good guy, you know, and, and, and even more so than, because that's subjective, right? You know, Oh, he, I thought he was a good guy and I probably didn't know everything about him, but I loved him dearly. And that, that was essentially the eulogy that was delivered which was, you know, well, he was a good guy and took care of his family, but, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't say that the secret password we've all agreed on is what you have to do to, to, to have any kind of reward after this life is over. So the best we could hope for is that while he lay there unconscious, maybe, maybe he did it then, you know, but otherwise. And I was just shocked. Of course. That it's mm-hmm. like even outside the context of the religion, it's just like this, this is what you're going to say, you know, and there's my grandmother right there, you know, mourning. And there's my mom, his daughter. They're all there listening to this. And I'm thinking that's, that's the best you've got. That's the best you can come up with. I mean, for crying out loud, lie or something. I mean, have have good grief, you know? So it, It was a formative event for me um, on this growing sense that I had that maybe not religion as a whole, but certainly the religion I'd been raised with was bankrupt in some way, if that was the best they could come up with for my dear granddad. Uh, and it's haunted. It's, it, I, 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 when I've talked about this story with people, which I haven't talked frankly about it to more than maybe two people in my whole life before this film. I always talk about the story as it's a ghost that has haunted me. Uh, Even as my perspective from angry young man, you know, has evolved since then and has even evolved in a faith direction. uh, the, The ghost is still there. It's still as a story, as an event haunts me. And in a similar way to uh, the Nine Inch Nails video I did 12 years ago, um, which was sent around the story of this boy who had passed away and whatnot. That's all. It's the same thing. The same kind of story. It's a, a ghost that had stuck with me. This is, this is another one of those. And it was a way to let's deal with this, you know, and the, the film doesn't give any answers. Um, it just tries to treat it authentically. And yeah, the setting is different and the people are different. Um, but 
uh, and maybe even what what led me to change the ending to the in, to the fantasy sequence thing was a reflection of uh, how I've changed and how I come to look at it. You know, uh, in terms of I think that nineteen year old boy that experienced that about his granddad it wouldn't have been out of the question for him to do violence against someone saying that, even though I lacked the courage or the conviction to do so. Of course, there was no fist fight at my granddad's <laughs> funeral. Just, just to be clear, that's probably a good thing, <laughs> but boy, did I want to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I've, I've rambled on too long about it, but that's, that's the story. It's, it is based on a true story. Um, I chose not to put that into the credits of the film because I, I I feel like that that messes with expectations a little bit, I guess, because that's been used in so many different ways. I just thought, no, let's just tell this as a story and it'll be yep. my thing and whoever I talk to about it to know that it's got roots in a real experience. Well, you know, people, artists who create authentic art are people that use their own lives to tell their stories and it's their skill in uh, craft that allow them to shape it into something new and original. And when you do that, the art has a, a glow, a kind of specialness to it. And almost all of your work has that, Phil. You're one of the reasons why machinima is an important um, way to tell stories. And uh, every time you do something, it's always interesting, but this particular film, to me, uh, has to be your very best, um, which is saying a lot because you've been around for two decades in machinima. But I think the combination of your craft, the care in which you you crafted each moment and each scene, uh, combined with your own personal experience in it, just made it just a revelation. I don't think I've... Red Dead Redemption. You're gonna you're gonna put machinima making ahead. You're gonna push it forward, but also in particular in Red Dead Redemption because it shows what can be done. You're a leader, and Thank I'm you. so proud of you for for doing that. And so it's good to know that uh, while you were away, you were doing something constructive instead of gambling or <laughs> pouring and things like that. Well, in fairness, most of the work on this was done earlier in the year uh it was only the the wrap up oh okay okay stuff that i i finally got the, the the final cut done and got it coordinated with marcus on the music so tell our listeners how they can see your film phil uh well we'll put links to it in the show notes here um i do have it on my youtube channel my youtube channel is zs overman um i've got it on my vimeo channel as well or they could go to my website z-studios.com it's the the top film listed over there and hopefully uh maybe we'll see what uh the milan folks think of it yep good well. luck there's on not that many other there's not many other venues that uh that game-based machinima can be entered into i've been scouring film freeway and and a lot, a lot of closed doors there so uh but milan's a good opportunity so i'm excited they actually wrote back to me and acknowledged the submission and knew who i was apparently so they're excited so we'll see what happens well good um, luck yeah. Real quick, I know we're, we're, we're running a little longer than we intended here, but I wanted, Damien, you had asked about, oh. that's okay. Go ahead. 
Damien, you had asked about how did you do this? And I really focused on the camera work and all that. But I, I think probably more of what you were interested in is, is the, this, the controlling the characters, um, the makeshift lip sync mm. that was there. There was a mod that I think I'd talked about either on here or maybe on my Twitch stream when I was doing that called the map editor, uh, which isn't available anymore. Um, but it allowed you to place characters kind of statically in certain positions and save that as a scene sort of and objects as well. Like the whole, that grave site with the, the tombstone and all of that, those were objects that I had to place in there. They weren't, they're not there in the game. Uh, they're not, they're not at that location. I had, I wanted that particular location. Um, and then the lip sync, I knew I couldn't do real lip sync. Um, so I basically, there is a script way with that mod to trigger certain dialogue prompts. And I found that certain dialogue prompts were at least close enough to where if I didn't linger on it too long or that kind of thing, that, that it, it could pass off for, uh, you know, sync to what was actually being said. But unfortunately, I don't had to worry about that for that one character that spoke. But uh, that's how that was done, basically. And a lot of the other stuff, uh, the the mother turning her head to look when he got there at the gravesite, random. I mean, I waited for it, but it's just, it's part of her idol routine. Eventually, she'll mm. just look off that direction. And I noticed that. So I just took, just had the camera, just, just waited. Come on, <laughs> come on. And then she finally looks, you know. Um, the, the whole thing where the guy, that the main character is kind of, keeping the brim of his hat low and avoiding eye contact. And just, that's just, that's built into that character. And I just happened to notice it after looking at like a hundred different possible characters to be the lead. And he's the only one I saw that did that. And if I had the camera just right, it would look like that he's using the brim of his hat to just, that that's just him. He just doesn't, he doesn't look, doesn't hold eye contact when he's uncomfortable. Um, that was something that I noticed that that, that NPC did and just waited to capture it happening. So it was almost like working with an actor, yeah. just one you couldn't tell what to do. You know? <laughs> so uh, the other thing that was a happy accident, and, and I'll close with this, is I didn't, I didn't plan this at all. It just happened <clears throat> that I noticed that this particular character, if there was a dead body within a certain proximity, he would occasionally just look down at it and then look, look back up kind of uncomfortable and, and just, just do this move. You know, I'm sorry, the podcast can't see it, but just, <laughs> just looking down kind of with horror, um, very subdued horror. And I saw that and it was like that moment. That, that was the moment that I, I said, yeah, this is going to be something special because that, that would just, that just meant so much, you know? So then I had to, of course, place the dead body properly so he'd look the right way and all the mechanics of that. But ultimately that was just something that he only did when there's a dead body nearby and he'd look at it and he did it more. So get this Ricky, the detail on this, he did it more. So if he was responsible for, for that dead body being there, huh. like if he just walked across a corpse, he might look at it or whatever, but it wasn't the same facial expression. But if he had killed someone, wow. he'd look at it with guilt. 
And I'm thinking, what is this game, man? You know, unbelievable. Yeah. And it, and he's not a main character. And I doubt that that actually ever happens in the real game, like as a cutscene or something. Hmm. So somebody just did that. And they it's not just the motion capture, but somebody programmed the AI of that NPC to look down with guilt at the person he'd just felled. I mean, so as much of a displeasure as this game was to work with, and I will never make another Red Dead Redemption 2 film, never. It was nightmare. And yet, what a beautiful game to work with. Oh, man. You know? The result, you know, taking all of that out and just showing what works, it's just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So, you clearly put a lot of work into, um, into this film, and it shows. Thank you. It sure does. Thank you. It was a work of the heart, for sure. Thank you. All right, let's close a little bit with Marco Simone's music. For Phil Rice's new machinima film, Obit.